would you bow with me as we pray? Again, Father, we come to you. We come to you as debtors of mercy alone. Is indeed of, of the covenant mercy of God that we really sing. And it's amazing that we come with no fear. We come with God's righteousness on. And therefore we bring our praise and the offering of our lips knowing that in Christ Jesus you accept it. The terrors of the law have nothing to do with us. For in Christ there is no condemnation. We come to you embracing with great affection our Savior's obedience and his blood that have taken all our sins and all our transgressions away. What a privilege it is, Father. Thank you, Father, for the gifts of your calling, the gifts of repentance, the gifts of faith, the gifts of perseverance, and the gifts, the gift of eternal life. We pray this morning, ultimately, Father, for the glory of Jesus. That you would do that miracle in our hearts. That we would see Jesus with all clarity and with great affection. We pray that you would bind our hearts to yourself today. Undoubtedly, Father, we would sing with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Bind our hearts, Lord, and seal it. Seal it with thy courts above. We pray, Father, that your church would be sanctified and made holy, that you would cause a revival to occur amongst us, starting with us as individuals and moving out through this local church and into the community and around the world. Oh, how we desperately need that supernatural God-induced revival. Cause fervor and fire to occur in our bones, Lord, we pray. We pray, Father, for unity. We pray for unity amongst us, amongst your church in Canada and around the world. 
pray that the people of God, people outside of God, would see one heart and one mind and one spirit. Today we pray, Father, for the physical needs of our church. Lord, we pray for those who are shut in, particularly thinking of Niels and Doug Amy and Margaret Modine. There may be others, Lord, I miss, I'm sorry. We pray for those who are lonely, who just need a word of encouragement. And I pray that you'd give it to them today. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen the weak. Who amongst us would say that we are strong? So, Lord, we would ask that through your word and by your spirit and through the community of believers that you've given to us, that those of us who are weak would feel and strength, strengthened that the faint-hearted would be encouraged. Lord, I pray that we would learn the supernatural gift of being patient with one another. Oh, how we need that this day, to be patient. This we pray, Lord, so that your name is spoken of with great delight and honor. Now, Lord, as we look in your word, we pray for your word to quicken our hearts, cause your book to live, cause life to occur from your word. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts that would really, truly believe and resolve our wills that we might obey you. In all these things we ask for the pleasure of him who loved us and gave his life for us. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. And it'll be a while before we read it, but it would be good to have it open in front of you in the translation of scriptures you have, John 17. I was thinking that if you were uh, laid for some reason and, and, and came into the sanctuary when someone was praying, I know that for most people there would be a caution in your heart not to disturb the, this very sacred and holy time. You might wait outside or just slip in quietly. If you left the service and happened to see a couple people praying in the foyer, I think you would give them that level of respect and a wide berth and, and, uh, and not disturb them. When people are on their knees, so to speak, in prayer, there's, there's something very 
holy about that time. I've always remembered with some regret and yet today with thanksgiving um, flying to Trenton for to do some some work in Trenton. My parents live not far from Trenton in a little town called Belleville. And of course I would stay with them. I would remember coming in, stumbling in late at night, crawling into bed, and hearing my parents pray for me through the thin walls. I did not regard that as holy, but I do today. We have the privilege of through the Word of God to enter into the holiest of holy places, the holy sanctum of the prayer of Jesus. This is really the Lord's prayer. This is clearly the Lord's prayer. Justin Taylor wrote these words. He said, Jesus' high priestly prayer is only about 650 words. It takes only 3 minutes and 30 seconds to read it aloud, but it will take all eternity for us to fully understand it. The exact chronology and timetable of these last hours of Jesus' earthly life are not clearly known exactly. Generally, I believe, and this is subject to testing, and, but generally I believe that uh, after Judas was revealed and they sang a hymn, they went out and they were either in the Garden of Gethsemane or at least approaching. And it was there in John 15 that they went through a vineyard and Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And he was teaching and talking to them. And I think they were entering into the garden in an increasing measure. This is the way I understand it. And then he gave what comprises for us three chapters of instruction to the disciples that he's going to go away, but it's going to be okay. They're not to be anxious. The Holy Spirit would come and he would be with them and he would take them to be with him. And he gives them this word. And then we read in John 17, 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes. So I just don't know how this all happened. We can imagine he's either sitting or walking slowly and teaching his disciples. But in, in, in any case, when he finished that instruction, he paused and he just sequestered himself even in their presence. They heard this. And he, his attention went to his father. Now the question I have that I haven't been able to answer is where the, the prayer of agony comes in. 
take this cup from me. I'm not exactly sure because right after this chapter, you'll see that he's arrested. So we're entering into John 17, and we're not going to go quickly. In fact, today is I'm just going to introduce it and give some, some uh, important things that I think that are within it, but we're actually going to deal with it in greater detail. The question that comes to my mind, and I would hope would come to yours if you're reading and studying God's Word, is why is... John, the only gospel writer to include this prayer. All the other gospel writers include what I've coined the the agonizing prayer. But John is the only one that includes the high priestly prayer of Jesus. He's the only one that includes this. I got some help from Warren Wearsby who said, Each of the four Gospels has its own special emphasis. Matthew emphasizes Christ the King, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament Scriptures. Mark is the Gospel of the Servant. And Luke pictures the sympathetic Son of God. But John's purpose is to present the deity of Jesus Christ. You'll remember that as you look at John 20 of the purpose of this this story of Jesus that John wrote about. In John 20, verse 30, and Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Wearsby's right. The purpose of John is to reveal the deity of Jesus Christ. And so this morning I want to point out five things about this prayer that specifically point to the fact that if I was going to put a title on this, I'd call it this. This is God praying to God. This is God Praying to God. So I'm going to point out five characteristics that point to the fact that this is Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, praying to God. And it reveals his deity, which is the purpose of the book or the or the gospel. There's a couple of general observations I want to make too before I conclude. The first is, and I hope you have your Bibles in front of you, you'll see in verse 1, Jesus prays, Father, the hour is come. It should be noted to you that Jesus never prayed, Our Father. He never prayed, Our Father. Look at John 20, verse 17. I'll be taking you to a couple places, so you might as well get used to flipping pages or sliding your finger across your device. John 20, verse 17. 
Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Jesus always made the distinction that this was his God and God was your God. He never said, our Father. It's incredibly important. If that doesn't convince you, turn back to John 5. John 5, verse 17. Jesus is in this debate with the Pharisees. And he says, but, and John writes, but Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Now watch verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, doing what? Making himself equal to God. I don't want to split hairs over this and cause another reformation or something, but one must be hesitant in using even ourselves referring to the Father as my Father. That is a unique phrase that Jesus himself only has the right to use. That's why everything we are taught about the fatherhood of God is in the plural. He's our Father, but not mine. Jesus is the only one who could say my Father. And in Hebrew understanding, the Jews understood that when he said, My Father, he's making himself equal to God. You and I will never be equal to God. So the first point is the use of the phrase, My Father. God is our Father because of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He's our Father. Even the disciples' prayer, Our Father, which art in heaven, is in the plural. Our, we, say, we say it and pray it together. Even if we pray it privately, our minds should be thinking, I'm praying on behalf of the, all the believers all everywhere around the world. Our Father who art in heaven. But Jesus is the only one who can make himself equal to God by saying, My Father. So that's the first one. The second one is in the phrase, Glorify the Son. Jesus prays, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. No human being on this planet would dare blasphemously pray, glorify me. There isn't a person walking on two legs on planet that has lived, is living, or ever lived could possibly be so blasphemous as to pray, 
Father, glorify me. Like Moses, we say, let me see your glory, mercy and grace. Let me see your glory. But for a human being to ask the Father to glorify him, himself is really the height of depravity. Not only that, in verse 5 of chapter 17, Jesus goes on and says, Glorify me and glorify me with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Imagine, beloved church, but imagine someone saying to you, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus ever claim to be God. You can go to John 17 and just stay there. You don't even have to remember all the verses, the multitude of verses that he does, but just go to John 17. Who, who is human? What, which human could possibly pray, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world? <laughs> if that doesn't clearly point to the deity of Christ so that someone might hear that and believe and have eternal life, I don't know what else we could say. Only God could ask for such glory. Only God could pray to God this way. My Father was the first. Glorify the Son as the second. The third is the issue of eternal life in verse 2. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. Can you imagine a human being Offering eternal life to somebody? Can you imagine a human being offering eternal life? The intimate knowledge of God forever and ever? One human to another? No, only, only Christ could do this. And only Christ knows whom He's to give it to. No human being has ever given such knowledge. God can give eternal life. This statement alone, beloved, that Jesus has the right to give eternal life to people, and he's praying. He's praying to the Father, and he's saying, and this is eternal life, that they might know you. For any human being to say this, I think in the terms of, again, I beg to the, the, the author C.S. Lewis, who says, either the person who said that is a lunatic, or he's just a bald-faced liar, or he's God. And we choose the latter, amen? He's God. No human being could ever offer eternal life. Again, in verse 3, we have another clue that this is God praying to God. We read these words, whom you have sent. And that phrase is repeated again in verse 18, in verse 21 and 25. Now, let's be careful here because some of you will be thinking, yeah, but missionaries are sent by God, and that's true. Uh, 
we as a church generally in the Great Commission are, have been sent by God, and that's true. But there's a uniqueness here that it, it's only God who was sent by God. Notice verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. Only God could say, I have come from God, sent by God. We can't say that. The missionary lands up in Ecuador, they're going to, where did you come from? Well, God sent me. I came from a church in Canada. I received Christ as my Savior, and he, he put a call in my heart to spread the gospel around the world, and the church has 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 sent me as a small a apostle and that's where I am no missionary would ever say I came from God I was sent from God this is clearly pointing to the deity of Jesus Christ I love the old King James here it says I came out from thee Jesus praying no human being could ever claim that I came out from thee. One of the Greek translations literally translated that from thee I came out. So when Jesus is saying I was sent from God, he was saying I came out of the Father. I proceeded from the Father and was sent to you. Only Jesus could say I was sent from out of the Father. Notice back a chapter in chapter 16, verse 28. I came from the Father, and I have come into the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. I'm sure you're convinced by now, aren't you? This is God praying to God. This is the clear evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. This is clear lining, clearly lining up with the purpose of the book that if you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of, the God, Son of the God, you will have life and life in his name. This is God praying to God. He's the sent one in a very unique way. There's no human being could say they were sent of God in the manner that Jesus was sent from the Father. That's four Lastly, there's another phrase in verse 10. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. My dad had what we call daddy humor, as a lot of dads have. I recall hearing my dad joking with my mother. It's not original to him, but saying to my mother from time to time, what's yours is mine and what's mine is my own. He didn't mean that. He goes by far the most generous man I've ever known on planet Earth. Jesus says, 
All mine is yours and yours is mine. No human being could pray that way. No human being could pray that way. There's no person on earth who has ever lived or ever will live could pray and say to God, all yours is mine and all mine is yours. Other than someone who is equal to God and in fact is very God himself. So you see, beloved, it's my contention that what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to follow is nothing short of an astounding testimony to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And the prayer that we're reading is not a prayer that we can model very easily. I'm going to modify that in a second. But it's not a prayer you and I can model very easily, for this is indeed God praying to God. But by recognizing the fact that this is clearly the Christ, the Son of God, those who read such texts can believe that He is the Christ and that they can receive eternal life and they can have life in His name, which is the purpose of the book. Let me make some general observations before I conclude. First of all, as we look at John 17, we're going to find that there's absolutely tremendous wealth. In fact, I'm going to have to fight to keep this down to two or three sermons. Tremendous wealth. The great preacher Spurgeon said, some brethren pray by the yard, but true prayer is measured by the weight, not by the length. This is a prayer that's weighty. We sang so much this morning Thank you, Sherry, for picking the songs that way. We sang so much of the glory of God. What's the glory of God in Hebrew? The kabod, the weight of God. This is a prayer of weight. It speaks fully of God's glory in His Son. This prayer, if you'll notice, in verse 5, reaches all the way back to eternity past before the world was even created. He, the prayer goes back in the mind of Christ all the way to the glory that He had before the world was even created. And yet this prayer encompasses not only eternity past, but it also goes into eternity future. In verse 24, we read, Father, I desire that they also whom You've given, given Me may be with Me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus' thoughts are intent going all the way to eternity past, to eternity future. What weightiness in this prayer. What weightiness in this prayer. As we unpack this prayer, we're going to see that first of all, Jesus prays for himself. And then he prays for the 11 disciples. And then he prays for us and all who will believe in his name. That's, that's what he's thinking. As he either kneels down or sits down or falls down or stands. And he's praying this prayer before the Father. He's, he's praying for himself. He's praying for 
the 11 remaining apostles, and then he's going to pray for all who believe in the word, which includes you. That last section ought to be particularly given to memory by us. Some have surmised, and I can't prove this, I just love to think this way, that how Jesus prays in the third section of this prayer is perhaps how he's praying for you and me right now. Perhaps. The thing that I want you to remember, and you might want to write this down, is that there are four things on the heart of Jesus as he prays. And these are worthy to emulate. You can often see like a periscope into the heart of a person praying by their prayers. And we see the heart of Jesus clearly in this prayer. There are four words I'm going to share with you. The first is glory. The second is security. The third is holiness. And the last is unity. We learn that through this prayer, His glory and the glory of the Father is preeminent on His mind. We learn that through this prayer, the security and the ongoing perseverance of his church is uppermost on his mind. We learn that in his prayer, that as we open up the heart of Jesus, that the pursuit of holiness is uppermost on his mind. We learn that what is on his heart is the oneness of those he died for and saved, the unity of his church. If there's anything in here that I personally think a human being is capable, even a human being in grace is capable of, 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 of emulating, of being an example, is the heartbeat of Jesus praying for the glory of God, praying for the keptness of His church, praying for the sanctification and holiness of His church, and praying for the unity of His church. If there's anything that you and I can, can say, well, this is something we can emulate, it's that. As we pray for ourselves and we pray for one another. Lastly, we notice quite clearly in verse 9, Jesus is not praying for the world. The world that despises Him, the world that hates Him, the world that doesn't uh, know Him. Jesus is not praying for the world, but boy, do we learn a lot about the world. For a prayer that is not for the world, we learn a lot about the world. We first of all learn that to be a Christian is to be taken out of the world, verse 6. To be a Christian is to be taken out of the world. 
That means the values, the mores, the traditions, the customs, the spiritual attitudes of the world are not to be in the life of the Christian. We also learn in verse 11 that the Christians are kept in the world, though. I didn't plan this, but uh, I'm going to mention my dad again. Is this Father's Day or what? And I know you've heard this, but I've heard my dad say it so many times, even perhaps preaching on this text, he would, he would say Christians are to be in the world, but not of the world. It's like being in a rowboat in the lake. You're to be in the lake, but when the lake gets into the boat, you're in trouble. And that illustration is true of what we're going to see here, that Christians are taken out of the world and saving grace but we're called until Christ calls us home to live in the world, but the world better not get into the Christian or there's going to be trouble. But we also learn that Christians are sent into the world. That's where our work is. That's where our ministry is. Can I, can, can I just say something just as a pastor's heart? particularly to you ladies and men who are working in the world. There are many times I think we elevate positions of uh, pastoring, teaching Sunday school, leading a missionary group in the church, doing all these things. And please don't, I'm not, can you understand me that I'm not putting this down? But you know where the real ministry takes place is in that truck, in that retail store, in that office, in that medical clinic, in that oil field. That's your ministry. Every day that you leave home and go to work, you are a person taken out of the world and sent back into the world, but not to be of the world. You are doing a holy calling. Luther called it a holy vocation. Never forget it. Never let anyone look down upon you and despise you. Whether you're a mom in a home or in an office, or a dad building or driving. That is your ministry. You do it to the glory of God and the service of God with a mission on your mind. Just to preach the gospel to everyone. We also, fourthly and finally, know that the world doesn't know God. And that's what we're there to do. For the world to know God, they must... God must be revealed in us. They must see God in us. That's what it means to glorify God. It's to show God to the world that doesn't know Him. Don't assume the world knows Him. They don't. If an individual hasn't been called to Christ, born of the Spirit, repented and turned in faith to Jesus Christ alone for salvation, they do not know God. 
we get the joy of revealing God to them through the gospel and through our lives. Someone said the time has come for the church to get its priorities in order. They went on to say that one of the best ways to do this is to find out what's important to Jesus. Does that make sense? Does, does that, does that baffle anyone? If we're going to get our priorities right as a church, well, why don't we figure out what's important to Jesus and make that our, is that, is that okay? Is, are you, everyone's okay with that? Well, Jesus made glory of God his first priority. He made the preservation and security of his people the second priority. He made the holiness and sanctification of his people the third priority. And, and I'm, when I say one, two, three, I'm not trying to say one is more important than the other. I'm just listing the numbers, okay? And lastly, he made the unity of the church number four his priority. I think if I was to ask for what the application of this general overview of John 17 is, that would be it. So you go home and you don't have any doubt about what my intention was. My intention was to bring my heart and your hearts lined up with Jesus. So we leave this place and say, the glory of God, the security of His church, the holiness of His church, and the unity of His church is the most important thing in my mind. I believe if that happens, amazing things will happen, including multitudes coming to Christ because they will see Christ in us through His priorities. So what is on your heart this morning, beloved? What's important to you? What's important to me? What do I think about? What do I talk about? What do I choose to invest in, in time and energy and money? Does it line up with the same priorities that Jesus has? I pray that it does. Some of you might have asked the question, Jim's getting old and forgetful. We never had any scripture reading. Actually, that's not true. It might be true, but not in this case. I'd invite you to have your Bibles open again to John 17, and we're going to read it. According to Justin Taylor, it takes three minutes and 30 seconds. I won't pretend to follow that. John chapter 17. I would ask if you would join me in prayer before we read. Father, my heart is trembling as I read the prayer of your son before these people whom you loved and died for. This is holy ground. This is the inner sanctuary. Reading about God, praying to God. Help my eyes and my mind and my lips to pray this so that Jesus is honored. And may you cause these words to resonate in our hearts 
with great joy. And to the glory of Jesus, we, we read these words. Amen. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the Scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. And these things I speak in the world that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, and are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you've given me 
because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made them known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. May God receive glory.